0: Welcome to Essential Ethics and this special podcast in our series, Pandemic Ethics in a Children's Hospital. I'm your host, John Massey, Clinical Lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre here at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. Today we're exploring in more depth allocation of resources in the pandemic. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has caused the pandemic that many suspected would come but has still caught health services by surprise. Medical resources are never infinite, even in wealthy countries with well-established healthcare systems, such as Australia. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced us to make decisions we never thought that we would have to make. Who gets treated, who has to wait, and who doesn't get treated. However, it's not just the individual child we have to consider, but also the safety of staff, and the implications for children who haven't yet presented for care. In usual times, children's hospitals are often shielded from the worst of resource rationing as the care of children is preferenced, reflecting a normative community value of fostering the next generation and recognition of the special vulnerability of children. Even though it seems it's uncommon for children to be severely affected by the coronavirus, children and staff at children's hospitals have still been forced to offer different and often less good care to sick children. In this podcast, we explore some of the ethical issues around allocation of resources to children during the COVID-19 pandemic. To help us think through some of these issues, I'm joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre and Professor of Bioethics at the University of Melbourne School of Global and Population Health. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, John. Lynn, the coronavirus pandemic has forced us to think differently about the way we deliver healthcare at the moment. Can you outline for us the guiding principles that we've developed?
1: Mm. So you're right, John, it has forced us to think differently in a way, in the sense that we've had to pay more attention to the good of the whole community, whereas we're used to focusing on the good for individual patients. But it's important to be aware that this is not a total change. We're not in totally different ethical circumstances, but our focus has changed more towards looking after the community as a whole rather than acting on each individual patient's best interests in, uh, and according to their wishes or the wishes of their parents.
0: Lynn, but it's broader than that, isn't it? Because we're used to looking after the child, as you say, in, in, in preference to having to always think about the whole community. We think about the child usually in, in the context of their family. But the other dimension here is we have to think about the staff and we don't normally think a great deal about the staff to we deliver mm. care.
1: Mm. So, again... I focus is much more on staff and staff wellbeing than we're used to. Although if we step back and think about it, uh, protecting staff from risk of harm and protecting both the physical and uh, mental wellbeing of staff is always important. But the level of, of risk, I guess, or the level of threat to staff is much higher than usually. So we have much more focus on it.
0: And there's been a lot in the literature uh, about the risk to staff, and I think to some extent uh, we've been shielded from that again in the children's hospitals, uh, because there haven't been a lot of admissions around the world of sick children with COVID uh, virus. Lynn, one of the joys of clinical ethics is that we don't operate in theory land, uh, but we get into the messy sandpit of real-world medical dilemmas. And I thought we should just test the principles that you've outlined with a case. And just as a note, I'd like to remind our listeners, as we often do with cases, it's not a specific person, but a real issue that we've had to grapple with. So, Lynn, I'll I'll present this example to you. And we want to think about how we should respond to this situation of a child with a neuromuscular weakness that is advancing, meaning getting worse, child getting weaker steadily. And he has moderately severe scoliosis that would normally be treated by corrective surgery. The surgery requires the child to be intubated in the operating theatre and this is a high-risk aerosolisation procedure. To spend about six hours in the operating theatre with multiple medical nursing and support staff all of whom need PPE and then be nursed in the intensive care post operatively from anywhere between two or three days and maybe three weeks taking up a bed which might be needed by COVID-19 patients and all the staff through that time using PPE. It's likely the child will need non-invasive ventilation post-operatively which is another high-risk aerosolisation treatment, with periods of intense airway clearance, also high-risk aerosolisation. However, if the surgery is delayed by, say, six months, the scoliosis will advance, which will decrease the lung function of the child, which is not restored by doing the scoliosis surgery. The scoliosis surgery will prevent further deterioration and will have other benefits such as nursing and positioning in in wheelchair, but not increase the lung function. And over that time, the neuromuscular condition will get worse, which increases the risk of doing the procedure. And I guess at the same time, in six months, the waiting list will extend with other children needing similar surgeries. So, Lynn, this is a, a case where somebody needs something done. It can clearly wait till tomorrow the next day or next week. But perhaps it's going to be longer than that, six weeks, and it's going to take a lot of resource. And some of that resource is very specific to the needs of other patients who may have COVID-19. Mm. So how do you think we might be able to approach this?
1: Okay, John, so it's complicated. and Let's spend some time unpacking it. So the first thing I need to get clear in my mind is what benefit will this child get out of this scoliosis surgery so what are we hoping to achieve
0: so you're starting to approach this from beneficence for the individual at the moment
1: yes and the reason I'm doing that is I want to start on familiar territory and the, the key question to begin with is always what's in it for this child how will it help this child and then we'll start to bring in the other considerations
0: so the benefit to this child is that the scoliosis surgery will stop any further deterioration of lung function so as the spine curves over, it squashes the lung. That reduces lung capacity, which in this condition is likely to be reduced simply through weakness, but this is an additional reduction in lung capacity. Surgery can't improve that lung function, but can stop it getting worse, and that can buy a number of years of additional life for that patient. Also, the surgery is undertaken for the child's comfort, So often with scoliosis, there's back pain, there's difficulty sitting and being nursed, particularly an upright position of the chair, which is really the functional position for the child. So that will improve after the post-op period immediately the quality of life of that child and also in some ways of the family who have to nurse that child. Mm.
1: So the picture I've got, John, is a child in a wheelchair who's bent over after this surgery he would be able to sit up straighter. Yep. Is that right? Uh, breathe better. If yep. he breathes better, he feels better. He feel he has a bit more energy. Is that right?
0: Um, possibly, but not necessarily a lot in the breathing. The breathing becomes more about slowing deterioration.
1: Right. So okay. he's still
0: deteriorating his breathing because of his underlying condition. Yep. But that will happen more slowly now.
1: Yep. Okay. So it's he's slowed down the progression, giving him more time when he's still able to do
0: yep. some Buying, things. Years of life.
1: And helps him to sit up straighter yep. so that anything he can do, he's more able to do. Yeah, and his
0: interactions with the world are much yep. more natural sitting up.
1: Yep. And so this is a standard procedure to do for children Absolutely, in this situation. Yep. Okay, so now if we bring in the context of COVID-19 and think about what's changed, as you said, this is an elective surgery in the sense that it's not crucial to do tomorrow. It can be put off. On the other hand, in common with many elective surgeries, putting it off comes at a cost to the individual patient. Uh, so th- this patient doesn't get the improvement that he could get. Now, uh, he waits six, maybe 12 months, because as you point out, the waiting list will continue to accumulate patients, so the wait could be quite long. Uh, so he loses out. And our the thing we have to balance, and remember ethics is always about balancing competing considerations, and that's why it's complicated. It's never um, straightforward black and white, yes and no. So we're balancing uh, the loss that he will have through delay in surgery with a couple of things, I guess. The use of theatre resources at a time when we're trying to conserve theatre resources, the loss of uh, or the use of an ICU bed at a time when we're trying to keep those open, in case we have um, patients with COVID-19 or, I guess, with other conditions that we really need to keep those resources for. Um, And then sitting in the background is the personal protective equipment, um, which is another limited resource that we're trying to conserve. So we're really trying to trade those two things off. So then I have some questions for you. One of them is about... um, trying to understand where this, pati- where this particular surgery fits in that spectrum of all of the other elective surgeries that are currently being uh, delayed. So different surgeries take different amount of time. They produce a different benefit or gain to the patient. Um, and maybe some of them require more or less personal protective equipment. So can you give me a bit more to work with on that?
0: So I think, Lynn that this surgery... Needs a lot of theatre time, a lot of resource, and a lot of PPE to support the resource, a lot of, to support the personnel. You could trade this person's surgery against people who need something done, won't need intubation, so it's it, it's less aerosolising. There'll be less people needed in the operating theatre, so they would use less PPE and would be safer for the staff, uh, and but who may not get such a great benefit, who mm-hmm. could wait.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, maybe they're in some pain, need a joint realigned, um, keeping it orthopedic, or esophagus looked at, or something along those lines. So they're going to manage. They'd prefer not to wait six months, but at six months, they're probably the same in terms of medical state. Mm. But you could certainly get through the theatres a greater number of people. Some of those wouldn't need intensive care. Some of them, it would be clearer if they did, that it would be for a brief period because most of the time they stay 24 hours and they're out. Whereas this sort of case is known to be unpredictable and that sometimes somebody has a prolonged stay. Mm. And in the current setting, rather not start something... That's going to end up in a prolonged hmm. ICU stay. So,
1: all right, so let's start by thinking about capacity to benefit, which would be the key way of, um, in this situation, of putting into practice the ethical principle of distributive justice that we should allocate the resources we've got fairly, and that means using a criterion which we can state and which is relevant to the situation. So in terms of capacity to benefit, this child certainly has capacity to benefit. Um, But what you've pointed out is that a delay will reduce his capacity to benefit. So he'll get more out of it Mm. now than in six months' time. Whereas for some other elective surgeries, there might not be that loss. Um, If the child waits for six months, maybe they're in discomfort or uh, they lose some mobility but they'll be able to get back to where they would have been, even if they wait six months. So there's a bit more at stake for this child. And I'm inclined to think that that uh, the loss of capacity to benefit if he waits for six months puts him up the priority list uh, when you're comparing him with someone else who could wait, perhaps be in discomfort, but still get the same gain from the surgery. So there's going to be multiple factors here, and they're all in the mix. So capacity to benefit is one of them. Then the other thing you're pointing to is the amount of uh, PPE, the personal protective equipment that's going to be used. So in this sense, this is a longer, more complex surgery. If we're going to protect staff well, which we should do, um, that involves more use of PPE. So... In itself, I don't know how much that matters until I have a better understanding of the avail- current availability of the personal protective equipment. We need to be really careful to just not to say it's a limited resource, therefore we can't use too much of it. We have to use it judiciously, but maybe this would be a judicious use.
0: So you don't think the It's a sort of vague ethical concern, it, it, it's, it's a real concern, but it's perhaps not substantiated that way. We don't know. We're sort of not sure what our supply lines are. We've got enough. Sure, we could mm. cover this. But could it leave us vulnerable mm. down?
1: Yeah, look, tra- this is a difficult balance, but you can get it wrong in two ways. You can get it wrong by using up um, all of your protective equipment right now as if there's an unlimited supply. And it turns out there's not and you're in trouble. So that that would be one mistake that you could make. But the other mistake that you could make is to... Um, to conserve it all and try not to use any of it, Uh, basically trying to conserve it for the future. And then in the future, you have the supply and you've got all of these patients who've missed out on significant benefit when that wasn't necessary. So we can't absolutely predict, but I think we can get some idea and we need to strike the balance between being too liberal with the use of um, PPE, but on the other hand... um, trying to avoid over-conserving. So it doesn't seem to me just because it's going to take a lot of PPE that that automatically says, no, we shouldn't do this.
0: So I sense, Lynn, you're possibly leaning a little bit towards the now because we can do good now and the capacity to benefit is high in this child?
1: Yes, and it's obviously very situation-specific, so I'm thinking about what is the situation today and what are we seeing in terms of patients who are coming into the hospital? What's the current pressure on PPE? What's the current pressure on ICU? And my understanding of that is that currently it's quite low. We don't have a high cas- caseload of patients in intensive care. Um, I'm, we could, I could check in with you on how the PPE supply Is going. I don't know if you're able to shed light on that. But in order to make a decision, that's something we would need to know.
0: So that would take, you know, a bit of sort of hospital teamwork to look at those considerations. Mm. And I think you know, one of the ethical things that might be done is that uh, it's not a decision of one or two people, but there's actually that puts us in the hands of a number of people to try and make a, a fair and balanced decision. Uh,
1: yes, John, that's which... very important because remember this question about fair allocation of resources is always a comparative question. So we can't answer it properly just by thinking about this one individual child. We need to know what's who are the other children out there for whom this resource could be used. Now, obviously, we can't name them all individually because some might turn up tomorrow and we don't know who they are yet. But we can get some sense of the overall picture and where this child fits in that overall picture. So we need to compare.
0: Lynn one of the things I'd like to, to, to think about, though, is that we're just even talking about um, offering less, perhaps offering less good care and that 's not a totally new problem because sometimes we are limited by availability of of resource mm. and ICU bed, but it 's not often for that long as is proposed here, and I think that brings up a, a mixture of of emotions and and so that might be distress that we 're offering less good care, but people talk about this thing called moral distress mm. and, and moral. Regret. Can you mm. sort of untangle those a little bit mm, for sure. us?
1: So if we start with the the um, the feeling that we're offering suboptimal care that's not as good as it could be and as we would like it to be and would normally do. So that's an uncomfortable feeling. And I guess it's important to have that uncomfortable feeling because that's the reality of the ethical balancing that you're doing when you've got limited resources and you have to prioritise. So uh, it's really important not to step away from that, to acknowledge that that's what's happening and it does make us uncomfortable. And actually it's good that it makes us uncomfortable. This is where the moral regret comes in. Because a decision to um, delay a surgery, which um, means that an individual patient gets less benefit, doesn't do as well as they could otherwise have done, is a moral loss. And so moral regret is absolutely appropriate. It is, however, important to be clear that moral regret at that loss is not the same as moral distress in the sense of feeling that um, I've been caught up in something that's wrong. So it's not wrong to make resource allocation decisions. They, in fact, need to be made. Um, And it's not wrong for an individual patient to have somewhat suboptimal care if there's a good justification for it. So that feeling of moral regret, I wish it didn't have to be like this, we've lost something for the, for that patient, that's morally good feeling which we should hang on to, it tells us we care about people. Um, a sense of moral distress that this is all terribly wrong and it should never have happened and we're doing the wrong thing is not appropriate in these circumstances because we're not doing the wrong thing. We have to make these decisions. Our job is to make them well. Uh, so the only thing I guess that would be an appropriate reason for moral distress would be a feeling that this decision was made badly, um, and it badly might mean on the basis of the wrong criteria or using incorrect information or perhaps biased in some way. So, in in relation to this particular patient, this patient has a disability, um, and I guess there could be concern that um, deciding to delay his surgeries in some ways. Uh, giving him less priority because he has a disability. And that should make us feel really morally uncomfortable. The way I've been discussing it, I've been talking about capacity to benefit, but I have not been talking about disability at all. Um, But I can see that from the outside, you could look at this decision and say, if we decided not to, um, if we decided, sorry, to delay his surgery, we could look at it and say, oh, that's because he's got a disability and other children who don't have disabilities, they're still getting their elective surgery. M- my understanding of the way we're thinking about it is that the disability itself is not the issue. It's about how much benefit we can get. And I've, in fact, been pushing the idea that this child could benefit quite a lot um, and perhaps more than other children who don't have disabilities because it's about the improvement in his quality of life in his context. It's not comparing in relation to other children. He can get a lot of improvement, other children with no disability maybe they can't get as much improvement.
0: And I think that's it's a very important thing and I sense that there are people uh, who have children with disabilities who are concerned from what they've heard happening overseas um, and rationing of resources and, and, and ventilators particularly as, as dominated thoughts who, who might be concerned. So I guess that almost brings us back to where we started, wasn't it, is is that having a set of criteria that is developed as a group with stakeholders uh, at the hospital mm. uh, and, and a process that's transparent and a policy that's transparent and, in a sense, the heavy lifting of the ethical work is done by something else. It's not disability versus non-disability, mm. but as you've highlighted by capacity uh, to benefit. Lynn, um just going back to moral distress, if somebody mm. was feeling moral distress mm. over this, and mm. uh, what, what could they do?
1: Yeah. At- uh, so that initial feeling of moral distress, I feel like something is wrong here and I'm being involved in doing something that's wrong. That's a perfectly understandable feeling and I would never suggest that anyone ignores it. It's really important to pay attention to it. I would suggest, though, that the first step in paying attention to it is to try and step back from that feeling and ask, what do I know about this situation and this decision and the basis on which it's being made? Part of understanding that is understanding what the other options were. So... uh this means having a grasp of what is the ethical thinking behind the decision. Ethical thinking always involves understanding what the possible options are and really doing an ethical evaluation, the ethical pros and cons of each. In many cases in ethics, we don't get the luxury of getting a really good or certainly not a perfect ethical decision. Sometimes we have to make the least worst decision. So if you looked at that in isolation, it can feel like the wrong decision. It's only when you see it in comparison to the other possibilities that you realize that no, it's not ethically wrong, it's the best of a of a bad lot. So unpacking the ethical thinking that's gone into reaching that decision is the first step in relation to moral distress.
0: I think I mean Lynn, one of the the things about that is um that the, the people feeling distress often don't know what those decisions have been and have been sort of separated mm. from that, and I guess mm. that's probably why moral distress is such a strong issue in the nursing ethics uh, mm. literature. The nurses yes. at bedside they're often doing the sort of heavy lifting in terms of patient care without necessarily being involved in some of those bigger uh, decisions. But but sometimes uh, and often they're they're right there and they know what those decisions are and still feel distress. So what's our mechanism uh, for them or for medical staff when they're feeling that distress to to help work through that?
1: So if I can go back to your first point, John, um, about the way in which people or uh, healthcare staff working in a big institution often are not privy to the decision-making that's that's happened and they're there on the front line carrying it out. That's, um, I think, a really unfortunate feature of Uh, healthcare systems. We have healthcare systems that are large and hierarchical because it in general works really well for the patient, uh, but this is an unfortunate side effect. Uh, That means that communication and involving people in decision-making as much as possible is really important. Now, not everyone can be there uh, at the time that key decisions are made, but there should be a way of communicating those key decisions which is not just, here's the decision, but here's the reasoning behind this. That takes a bit more time. Maybe it requires a bit more careful documentation, but it would save a lot of moral distress, I think. Now, to the second part of your question, when moral distress is there, important to talk about it. So our clinical ethics service does uh, offer a forum for anyone, any staff member to put their hand up and say, I'm concerned about this decision could you please organise a discussion where we can talk it through?
0: And that's our clinical ethics response group that, that we call it here at, at RCH. So I think that's a reminder. And a lot of institutions now have such a, a group, some uh, well-formed, some less there, but less, less obvious, but they're there. And I think that's a good forum. And anybody can put up their hand and anybody can approach us. Lynn, I'd like now, I've got my, I've got my can opener out. And, and, and I'm carefully opening what I think is a Pandora's box of worms.
1: We'll have to worry later about whether there were worms in Pandora's box. Yeah, well, there we'll, is I nothing... I see where you're going.
0: I think there's nothing as good as a mixed metaphor. Um, so here's a Pandora's box of worms for you. What do we tell the patient and their parents about why we're delaying surgery or, obviously that frames it in this case, but in, you know, in any mm. care that for that individual is less than perfect yep. or might even be not even good enough really mm. in the circumstances because mm. I guess the individual and the family don't really care that much about the rest of the community mm. in most mm. settings when it comes to the mm. health care of their child. Yep.
1: All right, so I'm thinking about all of those wounds, oh, you want to put the John. lid back on, don't you? No. I don't want to put the lid back on, but I'm just watching where all the worms are running or whatever worms do, and I want to make sure I chase them all down. Okay, so let's start with what should we say to parents and separate that from what we should say to the child. Um, I think we owe parents honesty in this situation, um, partly out of respect for them as um, you know thinking individuals who will know what's going on anyway and will pick up some of the vibe, even if we're not um, upfront about it. So trying to cover up a change in care plan um, that's actually not so, makes things not so good for their child should be disclosed. The reason should be disclosed um, and made clear. I'm very strong on the view that we should not expect parents, as you've suggested, to put the welfare of other children or people ahead of their own child's welfare, And so we shouldn't be looking for them to do that. Uh, But we're not actually asking them to make a choice or decision themselves. We're actually saying, because of the bigger picture, this is what we can now offer your child and this is why it's this way. We're not asking them to say yes or no to that. But we absolutely owe them an explanation of what the change is and why. uh, And a reassurance... Genuine reassurance that we're doing everything we can to minimize uh, the impact on their child
0: and so Lynn, are we sharing the the, the policies and criteria and conditions that we've developed?
1: I think we're certainly sharing, if not a whole list of that on paper, we're sharing that there is a process which has criteria. In this situation, I would be very clear with parents that it's not based on disability or your son's diagnosis or anything like that. We're looking at each child or each type of surgery and saying, what benefit would this child get from this? How much does it help them? And we're trying to prioritise the surgeries that will get the most help uh, for the for the child whilst at the same time uh, managing the amount of theater time and the amount of protective equipment we've got for staff so I would explain those criteria in those sort of terms
0: so then I think we've covered really a, a lot of things today with a very complicated uh, situation and I think w- what we've brought out is that we have developed a, an approach through Consensus that we consider the individual child and their needs in the context of the hospital, the context of competing needs, which is staff safety and personal protective equipment, mm. that one of the things that's very strongly guiding us is the capacity to benefit mm. uh, the child. And that allows us to, to leave considerations of disability behind we hope?
1: Certainly in terms of disability per se. So our under, what we do need to unpack is what is it to benefit? Uh, and I guess as we've thought more and more about these decisions, we've become clearer that benefit is not just saving your life. Benefit is improving your life. Uh, and benefit is improving a life not just in terms of physical things, but also Um, For example, ability to participate in activities, to participate in family life. Uh, So it's not simply a matter of returning you to kind of normal function. And it's very much seeing each individual child's uh, capacity to benefit in terms of what their life is at the moment and what their life could be in the future. So even the idea of benefit is really complicated and not unidimensional.
0: Yeah, thanks. I think that that's always that element too. And of course, critics can always look at the subjective uh, nature of those considerations. Um, Lynn, I think the other thing that we've learned today, I think, is just to try and tease out distress, moral distress and moral regret, and that it's good in a way to have some moral regret, or at least to acknowledge that, because it means you're thinking about um, the situation. Uh, and perhaps uh, the obligation then becomes to try and change the situation where possible. It's, it's harder with COVID, but there are other resource situations where that might be your obligation uh, mm. to soon change As soon as you
1: recognise moral regret, and you've said this is not ethically optimal, would be better if it could be different, then it does challenge us to think, well, could it be different? Uh, and maybe to not accept limitations that are only seem to be there. So we've always got to work harder at the thinking, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I think work harder at the thinking and accept the, the obligations that that then puts on you to, to try and do better. I mean, that's the wonderful challenge of ethics, isn't mm. it? Um, the other thing that we've, we've covered, which has been fantastic, is moral distress and the mechanisms of trying to think through that and the service that the Children's Bioethics Centre uh, can provide. And and I think what's always a, a telling reminder because it's so easy to get tripped up with truth telling because we don't necessarily want to hurt people and we want to be clear, but we need to be clear about what we're doing and the rationale, and, and sometimes we might have to wear some emotion as we do that. But honesty, obviously, is 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 very very important uh, in these times, in all times. But being clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it Mm.
1: I I think paying people the respect of being honest with them whilst it might be emotionally challenging at the time quite possibly saves you a lot of emotional angst and potentially conflict down the track
0: well I'm going to pay you um, the respect by saying how much fun it's been doing another podcast with you Uh, thanks Lynn thank you John good talking to you and uh, if you've, uh, everyone else listening, have enjoyed this podcast, uh, please give us a rating on your podcast uh, app. This podcast was brought to you through the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. podcast was produced by the creative studios of the Royal Children's Hospital. To find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, which will go ahead this year as an online forum, and it's going to be ethical reflections of coronavirus pandemic. Visit us on our website, rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired.